0: would remain standing. We're going to read this morning from God's Word, from the book of Matthew, chapter 9, or chapter 5, verse 9, verse 9. Hear now the Word of God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Thus ends the reading of God's holy, inspired, and inerrant word. May he lay its eternal truths on our hearts this morning. Let's ask him to do just that. Heavenly Father, would you use your word today to teach us well about peace. Teach us what real peace is and teach us how we can be peacemakers just as Jesus calls us to be instruct us in your ways teach us what pleases you and open our hearts to your message for us through Christ by the work of your spirit we pray this in Jesus name amen Amen. you may be seated when we first started this series on the Sermon on the Mount it's funny we're preaching all of the book of Matthew and yet to me it seems like a miniature series so far Uh, on the Sermon on the Mount. In fact, once we reach the end of the Sermon on the Mount, at the end of chapter 6, I plan on taking a break, and then we will eventually come back to Matthew again. So it really is a series on the Sermon on the Mount, and I guess everything after that is just going to be called The Rest of Matthew. Um, But one of the things that I I tried to point out when we started this series on the Sermon on the Mount is I wanted to show very intentionally how, in general, non-Christians if they have any sort of religious experience, any kind of background, any kind of sort of superficial knowledge of Christianity, they will speak very favorably about the Sermon on the Mount. So you'll hear non-believers, you'll have non-Christians lamenting, and they'll be saying, if we could just put the Sermon on the Mount into practice, how much better the world would be. You hear them talking like this. And today's passage is really sort of the cream of the crop when it comes to the sort of passages that the world really loves and admires, or at least thinks that it loves and admires. Because as we found with the other Beatitudes, the problem begins to emerge once you realize that this is, again, an utterly gospel-oriented Beatitude that Jesus is speaking to this crowd here. He's not giving general platitudes about what a good life looks like. He's showing us what the Christian life looks like. And so if you could cut to the chase... And in fact, I'm going to give you the ending of the sermon here. The ending of the sermon is there is no peacemaking without Christ the peacemaker. So everything I say is just going to be moving in that direction. Um, There are two kinds of peace. One kind is a counterfeit peace and one is the real thing. You see Jesus highlight these two kinds of peace in in John chapter 14. I'm going to cheat a little bit and borrow from John 14 today for the sermon on Matthew. Uh, But Jesus says this in John 14, 27. He says, Peace I leave with you. My peace I give you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. And so Jesus here makes this distinction between these two kinds of peace. One is the kind of peace that he gives And one is the kind that is the counterfeit peace. One is the kind that the world does its very best to make happen. And he sets them against each other. He says, not as the world gives. In other words, these are mutually exclusive paths of peace. And only one of them is real. The other one is the counterfeit. And so if we're going to be peacemakers, as Jesus calls us to be, then we have got to think well about what peace is and what it means, and the role we're supposed to play in that. So this morning, we need to talk about the first type of peace, and that is peace as the world gives. Now, this isn't real peace, but if we're going to understand the times, we need to reflect on what the world thinks peace is and why its attempts at peace keep failing. I take that for granted, that the world's attempts at peace have been failures. I was in, I was in traffic. Uh, I haven't been in bumper-to-bumper bumper traffic in a while, as long as I haven't had to drive my older kids to the south campus at St. Stephen's. It's been a while since I've been in bumper-to-bumper, bumper, but I'm gearing up for it. Oh, another week or two, and I'm getting ready to be stuck in traffic a lot. Um, but there, are, there was a car that I was behind, and it has so many bumper stickers on it. You know, just one of those cars where they're like, I found another bumper sticker. Here it goes. Um, but three of the bumper stickers caught my eye. And I'm gonna give you the three in the order in which I read them. And the first one that I saw was one that said, blessed are the peacemakers. And immediately I thought, this is an unusual bumper sticker for Portland. I like this so far. I could get behind this bumper sticker. I'm literally behind it, but I can get behind this bumper sticker, blessed are the peacemakers. Uh, And then I got to the next one and the next one, it feels like just this successive series of moves as you go from bumper sticker to bumper sticker. The next one said "Coexist." And I was like, okay, you know, we live in a democratic society. We don't kill each other over our religious differences. I'm good with that. I wouldn't put it on my car. uh, But I get it. All right. Okay. And then I got to the third one. And the third one said, when you eat animals, you're eating people. (laughs) I was like, good. Okay. Where are we? (laughs) You know? So... (laughs) So anyway, but here was what I was thinking as I was reading the bumper sticker. I thought this is very emblematic of the moment we're in. This person is enlightened, quasi-religious. They're eclectic in their worldview. It's sort of grabbing from here and there, just sort of kind of piecing all this stuff together. And generally not very coherent, I think. But favorable toward the idea of peacemakers, right? Who doesn't want a peacemaker? Whatever they think peacemaking means. And that is our social moment, I think, in a nutshell. Uh, Of course the world likes the idea of no war, right? Um, People like the idea of conflict going away. That's been the dream of utopians uh, for years. Um, I know it goes back further, but you sort of see it start, start to emerge on the world scene with Woodrow Wilson's plan for the League of Nations. That was the dream for the UN, right? The dream for the UN is we're going to have world peace if we all just get everybody together. And the reason all of this is very naive is really important to our point this morning. Why is peace so hard to come by? Why is peace so difficult to achieve? And part of the reason why the dreams of a peaceful world Why they exist in the first place is because we have got the wrong diagnosis of the problem. We get the problem wrong. We get the diagnosis wrong. Everything that follows is going to be wrong. And so that's why I say, if you go to the... Here's why I say that. If you go to the thinkers of the day, if you go to the writers of the day, if you go to the idea people and you say, what is wrong with the world? You get all sorts of answers, right? Some are going to say, the problem is political. If there wasn't a power imbalance, everyone would be at peace. And then some will say, no, it's it's economic. The problem is economic. They say there's a struggle between the haves and the have-nots. And as long as there's an imbalance that exists, everyone is going to be at each other's throats. And then depending on how you decide that you're going to answer the problem of why peace eludes us, then you're going to pursue your answers along that path. You're going to try to fix the problem that you see in front of you. So if you think the problem is economics, you're going to try to, f- try to find a, ma- a way to make the poor people richer and the rich people poorer. If you think the problem is political, then you're going to try some sort of League of Nations and get everyone together in a room, even the villains. Let's bring the villains into the room too. They have an opinion on things. Let's see if we can work this out. And neither answer has any realism to it whatsoever or takes into account just how bad human nature is. And of course, we've been trying... international leagues for a hundred years and it's gone miserably. I suppose we're in the moment where many are realizing the utopian dreams aren't going to happen and they can't happen. Or if you think of the problem domestically, if you think it's a political problem, then you're going to try to find a political solution and there's some political path where we're going to find some sort of reform this or change that or get a different person into the office let's try more government let's try less government let's try no government let's try all government if you can think of it it has been tried by someone somewhere in the world who thought this will make for peace from the secular point of view, what's the diagnosis? Our problem is environmental. I talked about this a couple weeks ago, right? The secular person says, the problem is environmental. It's outside of us. It's other people. It's a lack of money. Uh, it's, a, it's a power imbalance. We need more opportunities. Something like that. Biblically speaking, what's the diagnosis? The diagnosis is so different, right? The, the Bible tells us, We're all made in God's image. We are all equals before God. We all were made to live in community. We were made to live in community, not just with one another, but we were made to live in community with God. We were supposed to dwell with him. And then what happens? In the fall, we turn inward. We turn toward ourselves. We turn away from God. And then we turn on each other too. So then Adam blames Eve, his wife, and Cain blames Abel for the reason that God doesn't like him and all the... All the children that they have end up having the same problems together. And so what you find is that the Christian diagnosis is is that it isn't the environment that's the problem. It is us. And so the the, the solution that you pursue is going to be in line with the realization that the problem is me. See, the real diagnosis is of the human heart. It's not the environment. Our heart is desperately wicked, and our heart is deceitful. That's the real diagnosis. That's the real diagnosis that the world misses out on and excludes. And it's a diagnosis that no vote or transfer of wealth or political reform or League of Nations can ever touch. None of these things can touch the human heart. And yet the world wants peace. The world wants peace. And so here's the paradox... The world likes the results of the gospel. The world likes good families. They like healthy families. They like good neighbors. They like productive members of society. They like when people raise their children to do the same. The gospel does that, right? The gospel has that impact. It has tangible results that you can see when it is lived out in people's lives. And, and see, the world likes the results. But it's almost like they say, well, what if we could have the results without all the stuff before that made the results happen, right? Because they don't like what the gospel says about them. They don't like what it says about their heart and soul. The world wants peace, so they think. But when you start to talk about how that happens biblically, that's when these things start to fall apart. Why is that? Because as we're going to see in a moment, God's way of of bringing peace is to deal with the heart and to confront the individual. And this is something the world doesn't accept. In fact, if you try to deal with sin on an individual level, you are met immediately with the cries of, why are you judging me? So everything gets dealt with from a bird's eye view and nothing really gets dealt with on a person-to-person basis, right? And so the people in the world believe that their hearts are just fine. This is why you can't do the confrontation because everybody thinks that they're great and everyone else is the problem. Because deep down, I'm a really good person. Why? What's the problem then? It's the environment, right? We go back to the old, uh, the old diagnosis. And in fact, if you try to address the heart, the response you get is, How dare you judge me? Who are you to judge? So you can never get at the solution. It's kind of like imagine if somebody went to the, to the doctor and the doctor says, Yes, I see the problem. We need to extract the bullet. And the patient just swats their hand away and says, you get that scalpel and those tweezers away from me. There's no bullet in there. It's just that I've got a hole in my arm and there's blood pouring out. Fix the problem without dealing with the bullet. And of course, if we give people what they want, they won't find peace. They'll die on the table. Because the problem's never addressed. It's uncomfortable to address the problem. So what happens is the way of real peace gets excluded as a possibility. They won't hear that solution. They they won't hear the problem, so they won't hear the solution. And then what is our role then? Are we just hopeless as Christians? Are we just supposed to sit there and just wag our finger at everybody and just go, you people are so stupid. You can't figure out the solution to the situation that you're in because you're so ignorant. Is that what our job as Christians is? Are we supposed to meet here on Sundays and just talk about how bad they all are? I think there is something more that God gives to us than something that sort of myopic. Our role as Christians is to understand the times. We need to understand the place where we live. We need to understand what our unbelieving friends and neighbors are reaching for and why they are doing it the way that they are. So let's understand how it is that they see the world and why it is that we're not getting through to them. The world is doing its best, and yet their best is very far from enough, isn't it? That really is our first point. Kind of hopeless sounding, actually, right? Peace as the world gives. It, it should sound hopeless. It should sound hopeless. It's been tried. It's been tried and tried, and it is continuing to be tried. But let's get to the second thing, though, which is real answers. Peace as Christ gives. I, I already mentioned that the world is really confused on the issue of peace. And the reason is because they don't understand human problems. They don't understand human nature. And so, of course, they don't understand Christ's solution to that problem. The world has completely misplaced. They've missed this truth that we don't have peace with God. As a result, we don't have peace in our own soul. And we have no peace with each other either, right? Here's the thing. If our core relationship between ourselves and God is rife with conflict, then everything else in our life is going to show the symptoms ...of that discord. They're going to show the symptoms of that conflict. Here's what happens. Biblically speaking, peace doesn't just mean... ...that we don't actively fight with someone. This is a mistake, I think, from the world's perspective. They think peace is just the cessation of conflict. But the reality is... ...peace is actually the restoration and wholeness of a relationship. I know that sounds very touchy-feely. It sounds very psychological. But the issue is, you go back to the garden and what has happened. We violate our promise to God... We violate the covenant with God. He drives us out of the garden. We start fighting with each other. This is not just psychological mumbo-jumbo. This is the Bible. This is what God is showing us. We're made to relate to God. We're made to relate to each other in a healthy way. And we don't have peace. And it's because that relationship with God has been broken. And so if peace is a restoration of relationship, then what is the biblical notion of a peacemaker? What does Jesus expect of us as Christians? You can put this actively, you can put this passively, in terms of what a peacemaker does and in terms of what a peacemaker doesn't do. So, what does a peacemaker passively do? A peacemaker is not somebody who's spoiling for a fight. A, a, a peacemaker, when you read scripture, you find a peacemaker is somebody who's not a quarrelsome person, he's not angry. Um, you have 1 Timothy 3, 2 Timothy 2. Both of those texts say that church officers should not be the quarrelsome types. Um, you've probably known people even in the church that seem to be sort of looking for conflict around every corner. Someone who just looks at all of life as war. They think they're William Wallace. They think everybody else is the king of England. Um, I know this. I'm speaking from my own experience. Um when I, uh, before I went to seminary, got out of college, and I was one of those bloggers who thought their mission was to save the church. I was not a pastor. I was just a college graduate who thought he was way smarter than he really was. Some things don't change. And when I, when I was doing this at the time, I was writing about things I really didn't understand about the PCA. And generally, I regret the way that I tended to constantly be on the prowl, looking for controversies to opine on. And so I look back, and I feel like my time would have been much better spent leading a Bible study or sending letters of encouragement to church members. Um, Back in the 2000s, you could still send letters to people, and it wasn't weird. Um, Now you send emails. If you get a letter in the mail, you're like, oh no, someone's suing me, you know. Uh, Paul says, no, you you shouldn't be somebody who's always spoiling for a fight, someone who's always looking for a fight, someone who's seeking out conflict. You find your meaning, you find your purpose in battles. No, that's not what it means. We're not to be quarrelsome people. If the fights come to us, we do not welcome them. Uh, And that's sort of the passive side of what it means to be a peacemaker. It means that we're not out looking for trouble. But there's an active aspect to being a peacemaker too. In other words, there's something that we don't just not do But there is something that we're supposed to do in being a peacemaker. We're supposed to be someone who pursues peace. Paul says this in Romans 14, 19. He says, So then let us pursue what makes for peace. So, whatever it is that makes for peace, he says, pursue it, right? He gives it, uses this verb, you know, this verb for chasing something, this this word for hunting something, this word for seeking something out and looking for it and trying to make it happen. He says, let's make an active pursuit of peace something that we're engaging in. So we're not the kind of person to pick fights and we are the kind of person to say, what can I do to make peace? Uh, Paul is describing someone who is actually doing something to make for peace, What does that mean? I'm the kind of person, naturally speaking, my tendency is to say, whatever the tense issue is in the room, let's not talk about that. Um, I'm a Midwesterner. We're famous for saying what's on our minds. And yet I spend enough time in the South that I find myself going, "Eh, maybe we shouldn't talk about that. Maybe we shouldn't talk about that. Um, And maybe you've been in rooms where there is an elephant in the room and everybody's afraid to raise it. A peacemaker, you might think a peacemaker is the person who keeps his mouth shut, and yet if, it's a, if there's tension, if there is a problem, if there's something that actually needs to be addressed, Paul says, don't be the person who dodges the problem. He says, do what makes for peace. And so a peacemaker says, what do we need to do to fix the underlying relationship here so that there is wholeness again between these parties? What do we actively need to do? Not just what do we need to ignore, what do we need to do? And Jesus gives all these instructions later in the, in the book of Matthew about how to confront someone who has sinned, how to deal with somebody who has sinned against you. And he's also given us lots of instructions on what to do when somebody confronts us with our sin. Now, here's the thing. I could go into that, but then then I would then I'd be spoiling a later sermon. So instead, I just have to remind you that Jesus says there are active ways to pursue these things. But what we do not want is a shallow view of peace. That is what the world does. The world says, let's deal with this in a shallow way. Gospel peace goes deep. Gospel peace, the more you reckon with it, think about it, reflect upon it, The better it is, the stronger it is, the more robust it is. When the world talks about peace, it's almost like you get close enough to it and it just breaks. It just dissolves. And gospel peace is something where the source of the discord and not just the symptoms is actually dealt with. Not only in our heart, but in the other party's heart too. Often that does mean that the church has to face and deal with error. Has to deal with conflict between people. Remember, there is a difference between a quarrelsome person and maybe a shepherd who protects the flock. You have passive shepherds who say, I'm protecting the flock from conflict. And so they won't deal with error when it comes up because it's too uncomfortable. I would say they're not listening to Paul who says, do what makes for peace. Sometimes what makes for peace is actually dealing with the error and giving instruction and showing from Scripture how this thing gets addressed. Not by your own authority. But you're going to the scriptures. And you're saying it's in the Bible. I'm not making this up. This isn't for my own ideas. I need to be able to do that. Um, pastors and elders. And, and I would say even church members. Should be on alert for error. And they should be ready to answer it. But. This is different than constantly spoiling for a fight. This is different than nitpicking apart a message or a sermon and saying, I differ with this thing. Let's see if we can have an argument about it, or I'm going to post on a blog about it, or I'm going to deal with this in some public way. We need to deal with the source of the discord, not just with the symptoms. There's only one way that a biblical peacemaker exists, and that's the foundation of biblical peacemaking. What's the foundation of biblical peacemaking? It is the peace that God makes between himself and everybody else. God makes peace with us. We know what biblical peacemaking looks like because God models it and he provides it for us. Here's the thing, and I'm really, really going to lean on this just for a moment. The secular world has no model of peacemaking. There is no secular model of peacemaking that can be stripped from the Bible and then applied for everybody else to also follow. That's the world that peace as the world gives. Jesus talked about this already. That the world does its best to make peace. It doesn't find it. What does Jesus say again? He says, not as the world gives do I give to you. Jesus says, I know how the world tries to give peace. And there's nothing profitable over there. Jesus says, let me give you a better way. Let me give you the only real way. In 2 Timothy 2.22, Paul tells Timothy, among other things, to pursue peace along with those who call on the Lord with a pure heart. I'm I'm highlighting that because these things go together here. Um, Did you notice two weeks ago, Jesus said, blessed are the pure in heart. And this week, he tells us, Be peacemakers, and what does he say? Pursue peace along with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart. It's almost like Paul sees the organization here, too. He sees the connection between having a pure heart, being with other people who pursue a pure heart, and pursuing peace. Jesus groups these Beatitudes together, and so does Paul. He seems to be telling us that there is a connection between having a pure heart and pursuing peace. It's, It's like God changes us. And suddenly we see how needless the conflict is. Plus, we know that we're forgiven. And so now we have a foundation for forgiving somebody else. And so in this beatitude, Jesus draws that tight connection with salvation and peacemaking. He says, blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. You see, these are people who are living out their sonship to pursue peace. You see that? It's here. It's, it's, it's here. We're not talking about people who are just easygoing and know how to chill out and not care so much. That is something I kind of liked when I came to Portland. Drivers are not as high strung here. I know you probably find, have trouble believing that. Um, but if you ever lived in Phoenix or if you ever lived in Jackson, Mississippi, you would be subjected to some crazy drivers. Your drivers here, pretty relaxed. Sometimes I think they don't even seem to be in a hurry. Um <laughs> I know, again, I know you can't believe it, but you just have to be somewhere else for long enough to see it. Some outsiders who haven't lived here all their lives can, can uh, vouch for me or tell me I'm crazy. Um, but that's not actually what it means to be a peacemaker. It doesn't mean that you're somebody who chills out and just learns not to care so much and just to let things, let, let things go. These are people who've had their relationship with God restored. And now they're at peace with him. And because they're calling on God together, they're at peace with each other. Right? We have a common purpose now. We're all moving in the same direction. We're all following after God. This is the, we have the same priorities in life. Because of this. And passages like in Galatians where he talks about God tearing down the dividing wall between people. And having this gospel-centered reason for restoration of people from all sorts of different walks. And tribes and tongues. All of this stuff comes together, and what you find is that you cannot just take this and do a TED Talk and just adapt this for secular people who have no interest in Jesus. It is cruel, actually, to do that. It's like playing a song for a deaf person or, or bragging about a sunset to a blind person, right? It's just cruel to hold out gospel peace to somebody and say, you can do this without Jesus, We did it in the church. You can do it without Jesus. That's crazy. And it feels like that's exactly what's happening right now around us. Where you have people with a general Christian background saying, Hey, I'm going to solve the conflict in society. And there's no need to bring Jesus into it. I will take a detour that's not a detour. Um, Last summer was horrible for lots of reasons. And... It was also horrible in terms of of racial conflict, and I would say it was also fruitless. I I believe 100% in the goal of racial reconciliation in this country, in this world, in the gospel. You see that it's a priority for Paul. You have no racial groups that are more different from each other than Jews and Gentiles, and Paul is convinced they can be brought together. And all Christians yearn to see people of all tribes and tongues and nations together worshiping alongside of one another in the same church, under the same Lord, under the same word, singing the same songs, indwelt by the same spirit, composing the same church family. I yearn for that. I know that the elders here yearn for that. I know that this congregation yearns for that. I know that Christians are supposed to yearn for that. But we know how that can happen because of the gospel, right? The the Bible tells us how this takes place. It tells us how Christ tears down the dividing walls between people and takes people from such different backgrounds, and it brings them to the same place together. It brings us together and makes a new family out of the human race. But do you know what? There is no taking that model and stripping it of Christ, You take that model and strip it of Christ, and all you have is sentimentality about human beings as being one brotherhood, perhaps. But see, the problem is we're broken apart from each other, and there are dividing walls, and we need Christ to tear those down. Here's what I see from the world, though. The world does this, at least the moment. What do they do? The world emphasizes, at the moment, deeper division. Increase the differences. Increase the problems. Enhance the already real troubles. Let's double down on the differences. Let's separate people apart from each other. And and in all of these things that seem, they seem to make things worse. What happens though? Christ is absolutely absent. Peace as the world gives is no peace at all. Within the church, here's the thing. There is no way that I want to say that the church has done this perfectly, but here is the reality. We can work on that because God has given us the roadmap. So when we fall short of it, we know what we're falling short of, right? Because God has spoken to us and he's told us how we can have peace. Christians can offer a clear biblical concept of how racial reconciliation can happen in the church, for example. I'm just using this sort of as a presenting symptom because at least we know what to work with and where we should start in scripture, right? At least biblically speaking, we can receive correction. We can be confronted if we haven't loved someone well because we have God's standards that we're not living up to. And and so we can repent. Uh, We can know there's forgiveness. We can know that change is possible by God's grace. But the whole framework For renewal and repair and peace is is here in the scripture. It is here in the text. It is within the bounds of the gospel. This is possible. But the people in the streets fighting each other, shooting each other, yelling at each other, I am very pessimistic we will find healing there. I'm very pessimistic that healing is possible at all actually without the gospel. Violent protesters and looters are destined to destroy each other apart from the gospel. Why is that? There is no forgiveness there. There's no reconciliation there. There's no restoration of, re- of relationship. There's no peace possible. There is only, I will try to dominate you. You will try to dominate me. We will try to destroy each other. And everybody, when they fail, will go back into their respective corners. That is mournful. It's the opposite of what the church is meant to be. It is mournful. It frustrates me. It frustrates me watching the world try to do this without the gospel. I can't even see where they're aiming. I really think Christians ought to stay very far from what is going on. And not because I do not believe in the noble goal of dealing with racial inequity. Not because I don't think there are policing problems in America. Or because violence in the streets is not a problem. But because... Lobbying the government is the secular way of pursuing peace, and it will not end in peace. Just more conflict. No forgiveness. No peace and no justice. But in the bounds of the church, in the bounds of Christ, repenting of racist thoughts, racist treatments of others, turning to Christ together in hope, that the dividing wall can be torn down and we can approach Christ, and this is really true and this really can happen, that will bring healing and that will bring forgiveness. Christ gives us the roadmap. He says, you can be a peacemaker. Peace is possible. He shows us there's a light at the end of the tunnel. He shows us that there's hope within the gospel. Why is that? Because of biblical peacemaking. This is Jesus' doing. This is Jesus' plan. This is what he wants for his people. It's what he wants for the church. And my point here is, is actually not really the issue of race. That's just me taking the most obvious and painful issue at the moment. And sort of bringing it out. But I do, I do think it shows the emptiness of the world's approach to this issue. Apart from the gospel it is a waste of time and a waste of talk. I don't know how peace ever happens from a secular perspective. I think that's why things seem to be getting worse not better. Because what's happened? We as a people, we are more removed from God as a society. We are missing biblical terminology as our common nomenclature, as the way that we speak to each other. We relate less to each other on any sort of biblical language whatsoever with one another. Is it, is it any surprise that further and further and further we get from the bible the further and further and further we get as a as a society that even understands basic christian terminology the more we struggle that is not a coincidence that that's happening at the same time my real point is that importing the christian principles and applying them to a situation where christ is meant to be absent stripped of the gospel Will neither work nor will it give what's being sought. The world loves the results of the gospel. They don't love the gospel. They love the peace the gospel brings, but they don't want to have what it takes to have gospel peace. So the peace Jesus gives is not the sort of peace the world's looking for. And so try as they may, if they follow Christ's peacemaking principles, they're going to end up disappointed with the results because they don't want to come to Jesus. And coming to Jesus is intrinsic to knowing peace. Let's get very practical. I'm going to talk about the sin of giving offense versus the sin of taking offense. I just want to talk about a few ways that we actually can address peacemaking in Scripture. We sabotage peacemaking when we are needlessly offensive. So I'm talking about the sin of giving offense here. Uh, There are Christians who seem to glory in bothering other people, right? They They say true things. And somehow they say beautiful things and true things somehow in the ugliest way possible. Um, Once I was uh, I was living in Phoenix. We went to the Mormon temple downtown, and the Mormons what they would do is they would put on a passion play every year, and so they would put on the passion play. It looks like a totally normal passion play, and then in the last two minutes they go, "Eh, "And Joseph Smith came to America, and all this other stuff." And so people who thought they were just coming to a passion play, they get to the end and they go, "I don't remember the sequel." (laughs) huh and they just kind of walk away confused and so what we would do is we'd go downtown and we would hand out flyers and we would say just so you know this is a Mormon passion play this is what they would this is what they're doing this is their beliefs and we would hand out these flyers and we would talk to people and sometimes you would meet Mormons who knew way more than you and made you look dumb maybe that was just me but they made me look dumb and uh, and I remember across the street there was another group of people Very different approach from our group. (laughs) We have the let's have a conversation approach. The guys across the street had a very different approach. Their approach was, what if we held up signs depicting Joseph Smith burning in hell? And what if we made signs making fun of the ceremonial undergarments that they wear for their weddings in the temple? Um, And what if we got a bullhorn out and screamed abusive things at the Mormons? And so that was kind of their approach. That was their their method, and, and I didn't see anybody talking to them. They weren't even having a conversation. They were just sort of needlessly, I think needlessly, representing Christ in a terrible light and giving needless offense. Not only that, they're harming the patient work that other people are trying to do on the other side of the street. It was really distressing. But it was sort of like sometimes sometimes all people carry around is a sledgehammer and no one how, knows how to use a screwdriver. Um, I think you can be right and wrong at the same time. And and these brothers were exactly that. We can needlessly offend, and we can sabotage peacemaking. We can also sabotage peacemaking when we're needlessly offended. Um, I think this is maybe one of the great problems of our own day. There is no greater way to earn the sympathy of the crowd at the moment than to say, I have been offended. Um, People gather around, they go, what offended you? What did they say? Why did they say that? Right? And this is not just outside the church. This is not just college campuses. This is not just Twitter. Um, This can happen to a a lesser degree in the church as well. We get needlessly offended in the church frequently. Um, Someone looks at us the wrong way. We take offense. Um, Someone says a word. And it wasn't meant to be hurtful, but we take offense anyway. Uh, I have a family member. Uh, She went to a church one Sunday and then she went the next Sunday, and she made the mistake of wearing the same dress. And someone in the church said, I, "Actually, this is not very tactful. I don't recommend you do this. It's certainly not a great way to open a conversation." I saw that you wore that dress last week. Is that the only church you own, or shirt uh, dress you own? Is what she was asked, and did not go back again. Now, on the one hand, you might think, "Was that extreme?" I don't know, but if it's a church where the gospel is preached, You might want to figure out how not to be offended so you can go back. I understand. I understand when people make hurtful comments. Um, It's easy to be hurt, though. And it's usually small things. It's usually not big things. It's usually not something gigantic and monumental that hurts us in the church. Someone spends time with another person more than they spend with you. You feel hurt that you weren't included. Someone forgets to give you a, a thank you note. Um, I knew a man in the church once who was driving past the pastor on the road and the pastor did not see him and wave at him. And he made the decision once and for all that the pastor was unfriendly and he never forgot. He never forgot how unfriendly the pastor is. Um, these are real things. These are real life things. Um, but yeah, notice this though. Like the illustrations that are the most realistic are the small things. They're the small things that just that get us the most. And it's the little offenses that end up bothering us the most. And they end up sticking with us the longest. And I think at this point, being a peacemaker means having a mentality the way our church's catechism lays it out for us. Uh, If you look at our church's catechism, it it mentions in its discussion of the ninth chapter that we're supposed to have a charitable understanding of of, of others. Right? We're supposed to think the best of others. So I'm going to read you. Uh, from our catechism and I'm going to recommend you look at it on your own because this is very rich but you can just, just listen to the peacemaking potential in this catechism question number 144 and 145 it says the duties required in the ninth commandment that's the commandment not to bear false witness the duties required in the ninth commandment are the preserving and promoting of truth between man and man and the good name of our neighbor as well as our own Appearing and standing for the truth and from the heart sincerely, freely, clearly, and fully speaking the truth and only the truth in matters of judgment and justice and in all other things whatsoever. A charitable esteem of our neighbor. That means thinking the best of the person. That means assuming the best about the other person. Loving desiring and rejoicing in their good name. Unwilling to admit an evil report concerning them. That means if someone tells you something bad about another person, you are unwilling to hear it. That's hard. <laughs> Discouraging talebearers. So when you hear someone come to you and say, did you hear about so-and-so? And they are not so-and-so. Then you say, I don't want to hear this story about that person. And you just shut it down. That's hard to do. Defending our own good name and the good name of others when need requires. There's more there. I'm skipping over stuff because that is so rich. But the, what what's happening here is God is giving us these powerful tools of peacemaking. Um, this is mature Christian interpersonal dynamics being described here from the ninth commandment. And so the, the ninth commandment is saying we need to believe things about others that are true, not just things that could be true. Just imagine if we just got that tattooed on our arm. I'm not telling you to, but we should believe things that are true, not things that could be true. Half our worldview would disintegrate if we did that it could be that this person didn't wave at you because, not because you're not important. It could be that they didn't see you, right? It could be that that person wanted to send you a message and and then they were trying to communicate that you're unwanted. Maybe it's just that they were careless. That sometimes happens. Um, it could be this person made the comment about how you're dressed and they, they, they wanted to hurt your feelings. Or it could be that they didn't even realize how they said what they said. In every one of these instances, we have a choice that we can make as the recipient of the comment or of the experience. We can either believe the worst about the person or we can believe the best about the person until we have reason to believe otherwise. The ninth commandment says we should have charitable esteem. In other words, unless we know otherwise, we should assume the best. Are you guilty of assuming the worst about offenses that you've suffered? God may be calling you to repent. He may be calling you as the offended party to repent of being offended because you assume the worst about the person and not what you knew was true. Now, here's the thing. And I know this is the way that we are. We're all this way. We don't want to assume the best about the person because we could be wrong. And if we're wrong, we do not want to be tricked. We do not want to be taken. We don't want to be caught unawares. We want to be suspicious. So we look around and we're careful and no one can hurt us that way, right? That is what happens. That is true. If you assume the worst about everybody, no one can get near you. No one can hurt you. I mean, that's actually not true, but you'll be safer. You'll be safer that way. And it means that we might be naive to believe the best, but it is better to be a naive fool than to live in suspicion. There's this old apocryphal tale about Thomas Aquinas, and I say it's apocryphal because you hear it from a story from someone who knew him, from someone who knew him, from someone who knew him, so, so many people removed. So I don't know if it's true. I don't want to be a talebearer. so we'll call it apocryphal. Uh, we'll put it in the in-between category. But the story's told of little Thomas Aquinas. He was a robust little fellow. Big old stomach, even back then. Just a tiny little egg of a man. And Thomas Aquinas, they said that he had a, a little hole cut out at his table so that he could scoot up to the table to eat easier. <laughs> Um, and one, of, one day, one of the kids, again, could be apocryphal. Um, so one, of the, one day, one of the kids, they knew that he was very vulnerable to pranks. Little Thomas Aquinas, very vulnerable. So one of the kids points out the window and he says, Thomas, the pigs are flying. Little Thomas scoots out from his desk and wobbles over to the window and looks outside and looks expectantly up into the air. And all of his classmates howling with laughter just falling on the ground just laughing as hard as could possibly be once they had their fun once they finished thomas was said to have looked at them all and said i would rather believe that pigs could fly than that my own brothers would lie to me boom in your eye brothers <laughs> right in both eyes of <clears throat> When we avoid taking offense, yes, we may look naive. We may look foolish. Assuming the best about others does make us vulnerable. We may look foolish. I I just have to say from personal experience, I've tried to put this into practice. I've tried to be... uh, uh, I've tried to pervasively pursue this. And I, I don't always succeed, but I can honestly say this. I can honestly say... Even when I was eventually proven wrong and later found out the worst about the other person that I did my best not to assume, I never regretted choosing to believe the best about the other person first. I never regretted it. We believe the best about others. It's part of peacemaking. Avoiding giving offense, but avoiding taking offense. Ultimately, though, what happens when we've really been hurt by another believer See, the reality is Jesus is going to give us those practical steps later in the book of of Matthew. But in the meantime, I want to summarize a few of the principles, at least, that I've laid out here. First is this. Peace isn't just about ending conflict. It's not just about ending conflict. It's even more importantly about restoring the relationship. First, it's about the relationship between us and God. Then it's about the relationship between us and others. Second, True peace and reconciliation can't be found apart from Christ because ultimately these are issues of the heart and that is only something that Christ can deal with. Third, the world's peace will always function as a cheap, thin substitute for the real thing that we have in the gospel. Fourth, a peacemaker is someone who is not quarrelsome. He's not looking for trouble. Fifth, A peacemaker is someone who actively pursues what it will take to restore relationships so that real peace can happen. Sixth, a peacemaker decides that he will tell the truth in a way that is not needlessly offensive. And then finally, a peacemaker is somebody who's going to make the decision that they will believe the best about the other person and do their best not to take offense needlessly. Could you imagine if we just put all of those into practice, just what sort of a, a witness the church would be to the world? Now, none of these things are easy. None of these things are simple. Also, this isn't even comprehensive. We could do a series on biblical peacemaking, and it could run very long. And maybe, maybe I should do a series on that at some point. I'll just wait till you guys start actually fighting with each other. <laughs> but what, what I do hope you take away, though, is this. The centrality of Christ to all of this. You cannot strip Jesus out of it. Once you do, what are you left with? Nothing. A shell. Sentimentality at best. That as soon as you touch it, it just falls apart. That's what you're left with. You cannot take the world's ideas and paste Jesus over them. And you cannot take Christian peacemaking and extract Jesus from it. You can't take Jesus on these things and simply remove remove the cross And so that now it's palatable to unbelievers, because here is the truth. If there is no Jesus, then there is no peace. Let's pursue peace together. Let's pursue Christ together. And let's call the world around us to do the same. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, would you forgive us for the ways that we make trouble and we don't pursue peace? We are often guilty of making difficult situations worse and innocent situations problematic. Often we amplify problems instead of diffusing them. But because we know you, we have no excuses. Your son, Jesus Christ, is the son of peace who gave peace to people who did not deserve it. Help us to know Jesus and so to be peacemakers.